We are here in the 11FS offices in London for episode 90 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. And today we bring you Square Ramp Up Crypto Unit, the real Bitcoin market, and a failed ICO turns to eBay. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I am Sarah Feenan, and I haven't hosted in a while, so it's great to be back here. Simon is somewhere, uh, CGP is somewhere else, probably in a field, um, but I'm not actually alone, however. I am joined by the wonderful Tim Swanson. Tim, how are you? I'm wonderful. Great. <laughs> Welcome to uh, the land of Brexit. How, how have you found your stay so far? Uh, I, uh, it's fantastic for, fantastic for business. I've actually brought these little boats um, that are named you know, Bodie Mc postal lab space and mm. I'm going to selling it on the street corner and it's actually I'm completely out I have no more inventory yeah that makes sense that makes sense I think a few people are looking to cross the channel fairly soon uh, but moving on from politics let's get on with the news so our first story today is a bitwise ETF filing and it's titled the real Bitcoin market so a majority of Bitcoin trading volume is artificially created by unregulated exchanges, according to Bitwise Asset Management. So the firm attached a report in a Bitcoin-based ETF submission to the SEC in which it collected and analyzed Bitcoin trading data uh, over four days in March and across 81 cryptocurrency exchanges. So the conclusion was that 95% of the recording trading volume of these exchanges were was questionable or manufactured. Shock, horror, Tim. What do you think <laughs> about that? Okay, so yeah, we, we briefly discussed it. This, there's at least a couple points here. Number one, it is a little self-serving. They're basically saying, hey, we're doing it the right way. Um, although the analysis, I think, if I, if I recall, they just looked at like four specific days. So maybe maybe the sample size was too small that someone could argue. Uh, and I think they just looked at coin market cap, and some people argued saying you should look at other other types of indices. Um, but uh, the bottom line is, is uh, we've known this for a while. Um, did exchanges itself report and are located in places that don't enforce specific regulations? Um, they have a habit of basically uh, exaggerating their volume. We've seen this for years and years uh, in China. The, the the best story I heard was or the funniest story I heard was two years ago. OKCoin and Huobi uh, got dinged for uh, when they got raided when the police uh, raided them. Um, they discovered this huge discrepancy in which it was like 150 million dollars basically missing in the sense that the the exchanges took free deposits and went out to the market and got you know, basically borrowed for zero went out to the market and got higher mm. higher uh, yielding returns um, and didn't tell their customers at all right. uh, so they were operating at fractional reserve so uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me if this is the case 95 percent is a huge number um, they said that as a result I believe that the the quote unquote uh, U.S. regulated exchanges probably have a, a much larger volume than what we see on on coin market cap or whatever. Um, but I also think this also ties into um, what the rejection. The SEC has only rejected one ETF flat out, and that was the Winklevoss coin ETF, and it's for specifically the inability for um, SEC to have optics because there's no surveillance sharing agreement. So yeah. this really disproves the point of what the SEC rejected the ETF a couple of years for. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, so in the report, I um, have flicked through the 200 page report. Uh, and there were two points that the SEC had raised before of what what they would need to see in order to consider quite seriously one of these ETFs. And one of them, as you say, is the shared surveillance amongst um, some of these kind of institutions that are reporting prices. Uh, the other one was price stability as well. And um, kind of attached to that would be the uh, the ability for the Bitcoin markets not to be manipulated. Um so how does Bitwise solve that? I, I didn't see that they could fundamentally 
solve that 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 issue, especially when price discovery is taking place on three exchanges outside the U.S. Right, Binance, Bitfinex, and yeah. And uh, so one of the the solutions to that was to take a um, to take a feed from ten of the exchanges that have in some way, shape, or form become regulated. So whether that's uh, registering themselves as a money services business in the US or the New York um, bit license. So the uh, suggestion there would be to take the price feed or the, the spot price, basically, of Bitcoin from from those 10 and uh, feed it into one price, which kind of by, by construction, their argument makes it less easy to manipulate because it's taken from 10 sources um, and averaged out. Uh, I think the, the suggestion they... Um, put forward is very similar to the settlement of the CME Bitcoin futures pricing. Um, there was some arguments in there about Bitcoin being an asset that is um, uniquely unable to be manipulated, <laughs> uh, which is fairly tenuous, I would say. But I mean, there are some interesting points in there. They were saying that Bitcoin, because it's fungible across the globe, you have this kind of global market or a single market. But it's not though. Why, why is that? Why is it not fungible? Because you have black blacklisted addresses, the U.S. Treasury put a couple Iranian addresses on the OFAC list uh, last year, so we know that there's quote unquote blacklisted coins and whitelisted coins. Mm, yeah, well, that's um, that's their argument, though. That's what that, they're saying. That is that is their argument. Yeah, I'm not necessarily um, shilling it. You're totally saying endorsing I agree it. Right, right with now, it. she's she's it's literally signing an... a deal right now with Bitwise as we speak. <laughs> this is not an endorsement of the Bitwise US ETF fund application, no. Um, I mean, it is quite interesting. You see, you do see, um, bless you, Pet. This is it's not the first time, obviously, there's been an uh, exchange-traded fund application for Bitcoin. In the 200 pages that you looked through, did it mention anything about forks and how they handle, like, uh, for example, uh, contentious forks related to ticker symbols? Uh, I, I have to say, I can't remember reading anything about it. doesn't mean it's not contained in the pages, but um, I, think, I think you wrote an article about that before, didn't you? Yeah, uh, I can't take full credit. Siren uh, Murray um, also has written about this topic. Uh, this was related to when, when Bitcoin Cash uh, was forked off Bitcoin in uh, late 2017. You had exchanges that each uh, announced how they would uh, recognize one chain versus another. Uh, some said that we will always on only recognize BTC or give the, t the ticker symbol BTC to the, the network that uh, Core, the quote-unquote Bitcoin Core dev team works on. Uh, and they won't, even if there's more quote unquote proof of work or a longer chain with Bitcoin Cash, they, they wouldn't recognize that. And again, we don't have to go through and rehash all those arguments. But uh, the reason that's important is because CME um, had, I think it was four exchanges at the time, and they each had different policies uh, related to the fork. And as we've seen, there's a, a large price discrepancy between Bitcoin itself and Bitcoin Cash. So if, if you had you know 10 different exchanges and you know, half of them disagree on uh, which ticker symbol to give a chain and there's a large discrepancy, then you could have uh, a, a real whack to that price discovery. Mm, yeah, for sure. Why do you think that some uh, kind of standardization around a lot of these policies would certainly go some way to help? especially with the regulated exchanges in the U.S. But it's a contradiction. You have an anarchic chain with no terms of service, and then you're relying on effectively regulated financial institutions to decide yeah. what, what anarchists should do. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's a different question entirely, isn't it? Whether things like CME, Bitcoin futures, or um, trusted third-party custodians holding private keys, um, whether they actually have a place in this kind of anarchic um, You can't see it, but Sarah's community. waving a black flag as we speak. <laughs> it's to represent my black, black heart. 
All right. Well, let's move on then to uh, a reputable financial uh, publication, the FT.com. So a failed ICO is trying to flog itself on eBay. This uh, excellent and um, very amusing article by Jemima Kelly. Uh, Okay, so for as little as $60,000, a slice of history could be yours. That's the starting price in eBay auction for all of the documents, all of the branding, all of the strings of ones and zeros, and all of the broken dreams of an initial coin offering ICO that never managed to sell a single token. So the buyers are told the project has everything in place to conduct a successful ICO slash STO campaign, um, perhaps contributing to the thoughts of some that STO is really just the same as an ICO. Lawyers advised the project founders at the time to build a product before they raised money, which is one of the reasons they blame for their downfall. Uh, so, Tim, what do you think about this? That's ICOs amazing. for sale? No, I reached out to Jemima, actually. I was like, how do you get these articles? She's like, people <laughs> people reach out, reach out to us, and they, I guess they think they're going write, to write some flowery piece or something like that. So, uh, please continue sending these things to Jemima. Just, if, you're, if you're listening, send, send your, your crazy pitches. Um, yeah, so uh, the, the name of the, the token, if I recall, was something called Sponzi, which yeah. rhymes with... Ponzi, and I don't know if that was intentional or not. And maybe I'm mispronouncing it, but that's how it I might would. be because you are American. So I read that as sponsee, which of course what is, is, a is very different. Um, I I don't know. I don't know Tim because they haven't built a product. I've <laughs> <laughs> um, And actually, Jemima did speak to uh, the the person that that. Put the and who were the lawyers? Do you remember what the lawyers or the audit? Do you remember that 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 part of it? It was. It was something like Momentum Capital. I'd have to go back to the article. Memorandum Capital. Memorandum. And who are they? Are they an actual VC firm? Um, so it's allegedly was a British firm, but it's actually referring to a Poland-based firm called Memorandum Capital, and it lists various contract addresses in different countries on its website, one of which is in Manchester, where it's a residential address, um, where apparently 132 other companies are listed as, as being domiciled there. Um, don't know how big this building is, but it's like I a Cayman Islands it's, it's entity like where like has factory. twenty thousand hedge funds registered. And like, yeah, it's some, something like that. I don't know, uh, but there was also quite a lot of other. Um, but all they focus on was just coins, right? That's all they do is market. They don't actually. They're not. A, they, yeah. they, they misrepresented. Like until Jemima looked into it, they were representing themselves as uh, being some. Well, uh, so I'm not entirely sure whether it was the, uh, the the people that set up the ICO or whether this memorandum capital themselves were misrepresenting. But somewhere in some communication lines, some nuance was lost, and I think somewhere it was said that uh, it was approved by an investment bank. Mm-hmm. Except it, a memorandum capital certainly is an investment bank, and I, I think we're we're yet to see emerge a name of a proper investment bank that has approved it. Um, but there was, was some sort of quite funny uh, commentary on the article. I would seriously suggest you go and read it because it's, it's a great read. You're selling it short. There were fantastic <laughs> quotes related to, we should have just fundraised, who cares about you know following the law. It sure, sure it helped out with the, the users and, and their ownership of it, but it would have helped us with capital. And now we have no capital. That's where they're selling it on eBay. Yeah, pretty much. So I, I guess they want the capital to now build the product. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I think a lot of it just sums up the crazy ICO market. And this is kind of the fallout of it, that you see real people who um, tried to raise some money based on something they had never done yet. And now they're trying to sell it on eBay. <laughs> As one does. <laughs> yeah, tickled me that one. Very well done, Jemima. Okay, so moving on. 
to the next story. But before we do so, there is a quick shill from Colin. A shill indeed, Sarah. I don't know how quick it'll be. This episode is brought to you by R3. Blockchain is not just for financial services. Tons of industries can reach major benefits. Sarah, you're not going to talk about any of them, so I got to do it, right? Insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. Maybe even Tim Swanson on a blockchain? Discover the potential for blockchain for your business with R3's Quarter Platform. R3's Quarter Platform offers privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus. Plus, it includes the mission-critical features that every complex business needs, except for shilling. It also includes the world's only blockchain application firewall, the Quarter Platform, blockchain for every business and every industry. Head over to r3.com for more info. Okay, so our next story is from fortune.com. So Square is staffing up for a new cryptocurrency unit, says Jack Dorsey. Square CEO Jack Dorsey said he wants to hire a few cryptocurrency engineers and a designer to conduct work that will be that will contribute to advancing an accessible internet-based financial system that benefits the greater community. So Dorsey wrote, this will be Square's first open source initiative independent of our business objectives. These folks will focus entirely on what's best for the crypto community and individual economic empowerment, not on Square's commercial interests. So that's interesting. What do you, what's your take on that, Tim? Yeah, it seems like virtual signaling. Um, <laughs> again, uh, the way Cash, the Square Cash app works today, it's a custodial wallet. So it's a trusted third party. So if, if, if Lightning or any type of quote unquote second layer uh, bit of networking is is plugged into it. You're still relying on being KYC through this intermediary. So I find it very ironic that um, many of the same people who are supporting and very vocal about this on social media um, were the same ones making uh, jabs at Coinbase. They're like, oh yeah, Coinbase is this trusted third party intermediary. Well, that's the same exact situation you'd be mm. sitting here, even though it quote unquote uses Lightning on the edges. Still, you have this endpoint that you have to be KYC through. Uh, yeah, I mean, Jack has been in the crypto space for a while. Um, so I, I, I think there's, I take your point around that, but there is something nice about wanting to do something that doesn't actually hit Square's bottom line, something for the community. And I think he said as well that they've benefited quite a lot from a lot of the open source technology around there. Around there so he wants to give something back. Of course, he would say that, wouldn't he? Of course, but, he, wants, um, he wants developers to flock to him. And this is free marketing because everyone's talking about it. Like He has to care about the bottom line at some stage. He runs a publicly traded company. So he does, <laughs> but I'm not I sure think shareholders between, care. Squ- uh, between Square and Twitter, they're worth $54 billion, So he's probably got a little bit, of, um, little bit of runway there. Oh, I'm sure he could fund this. But this is just a, it's a public goods problem. So if, if all this is, is going to be a charity, then you know we, we've seen how sustainable those things are in the long run. Is he going to... Is he gonna, you know, put a slight. He said he was going to hire what, three, four developers. Yeah, I think so. so. Is this like you're, I know they're supposed to report to him directly, so they're going to earmark. Yeah. Okay, well, good luck running a charity for the rest of the next twenty years. <laughs> okay, pass the message on to Jack. In fact, you could just at him on Twitter I at could, Jack. Yeah. Well, he already reads our direct messages, so it's not a big deal. Does he? Oh. <laughs> Sarah's actually grabbing her phone and deleting very furiously her direct <laughs> messages with everybody. Uh, a random inbox of shills from ICO providers. Um, yeah, well, interesting. We'll watch that space. We'll see what they come up with. Um, I think these developers are able to work from anywhere and can be paid in Bitcoin. So dog fooding a little bit there. Moving on for our last story of the day, Colin actually spoke to Alex Batlin, CEO of Trustology, to get the inside scoop on an announcement they had to share. Over to Colin and Alex. I'm here with Alex Batland of Trustology. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, having me on the show. So you have big news that you guys just announced, but for our listeners, uh, can you remind us who you are and who Trustology are? 
of course, yeah. Hi, um, Alex Batlin, uh, founder and CEO of Trustology. Uh, Trustology really is a uh, crypto assets company that is looking to safeguard uh, private keys. Some pe- sometimes people talk about custodial wallet providers. Sometimes people talk about um, kind of crypto custodian. What we really do is safeguard um, people's private keys. On your user side, you've got an iPhone app. You install it. It looks like a software wallet, but actually everything is protected in hardware on the back end. So who who is using this? Is this targeted towards institutions, towards individuals, or different markets altogether? Sure, great question. So uh, the platform is built to serve all three client segments. So we're looking at um, kind of private individuals, be that uh, retail or high net worth individuals. We also look in businesses, so miners, uh, crypto funds, et cetera, who uh, need to uh, kind of manage keys. And then, of course, we're also offering a service for uh, financial institutions. So we act as a white label service provider. So if you're a financial institution wanting to offer uh, key safeguarding to your clients uh, and you want to use a technology provider and a service provider like Trustology, we'll run it for you. Or we have hybrid modes where uh, part or all of it can be on clients' premise as well. Awesome. So, so really, kind of like a broad sweeping sweeping segment of of everybody that needs to have their keys properly managed. You guys had big news this week. Yeah, we had. Yeah, I mean, kind of the the key there is creating a technology platform that um, is flexible enough uh, and can manage keys at scale. Uh, and I think that's what we did. Uh, to answer your question around there, uh, kind of the uh, the big news. Yeah, so we've uh, we launched our MVP. So this is what we call Trust Vault personal accounts. Um, so in UK Apple Store, anyone can go down right now, search for Trust Vault in the App Store, and they will hopefully find a app called Trust Vault. Click on that, download it, install it, and uh, you'll be able to apply for an early adopter account with us. Um, you put in your email address. Uh, we got a bit of a waiting list because there's quite a lot of demand, so we just want to make sure that we gate um, signups and we uh, offer great service throughout, so we gate access a little bit. Uh, so there's a waiting list, but as soon as you've been approved to go to the next stage, you'll do KYC. Uh, so this is eKYC, bank grade. Uh, we'll take photos of you and videos as well as uh, documents. Make sure uh, we know who you are. We'll do uh, all sorts of checks, uh, bank grade checks. And then uh, hopefully if you pass, you get a account. You can create new, um, a new key with us. Uh, this will be a private Ethereum key pair um, that's created inside the hardware wallet, uh, sorry, hardware security modules um, in our data centers. Um, on your user side, you'll get to see essentially what we call tiles. This is your account. You can have a look at the uh, address of the uh, public key matching the private key that we created inside the hardware security module for you. But all you need to know is that there's an address. You can move money in and out of it with our app. And if you ever lose the app, we redo the KYC process uh, to effectively register a new device that will be allowed to move uh, funds in and out of that account. Awesome. So it sounds really cool and, and easy to set up if you can get on that waiting list, if we're one of the lucky few. <laughs> so it's available right now uh, for UK users using Ether, um, Ethereum's native currency. Uh, plans are to extend both those aspects? 
That's correct, yeah. So we'll be looking to, on the roadmap, extend out to support both business users. So this includes uh, multi-sig, for instance, um, to, to support kind of more complex use, use cases. We're also adding Bitcoin and ARC20 support in the very near future, and then also expanding out uh, geographically beyond UK to places like Switzerland and other, and other uh, jurisdictions. Okay, awesome. And how about um, as far as uh, the protection that uh, that a user keeping keys with you has. Uh, how does that work? Sure thing. So uh, what, what happens when you install the app, what we do is actually create a uh, key inside uh, what's called the secure enclave of the iPhone. And this is a dedicated chip um, which stores your keys. It's, it's extremely safe. It's impossible to extract the key from the phone. Uh, all you can do with that key is uh, really sign transactions in the phone. So we use that. And when you create an account with us, uh, what you do is actually sign the account creation request with the, this private key inside the secure enclave. So we know exactly who you are because this uh, key is linked to your identity, which we captured during onboarding. Um, once we receive the request, um, we receive it inside the hardware security module. And we create a custom firmware for the hardware security module. So this is uh, proprietary IP. Uh, and where what we do is we create an account and we create what's called a policy file that basically maps the key in your phone as the authoritative key for the newly created key inside the hardware security module. This is very similar to uh, kind of, in some ways, old banking principle of when you open a checking account, you would supply the wet signature uh, to the bank. And then once you receive the wet signature, you can issue checks. And when you write a check out and sign it, what the teller does is compare the signature uh, on file with the signature on the check, and if it's correct, they will process the payment. So this is a very similar principle of effectively us receiving an instruction from you, signed with your phone, we check this all correct and according to policy, and if everything matches, we will re-sign it with the real keys inside the hardware security modules, and then send it all to the blockchain. The hardware security modules are dedicated service. They serve only one function, the only signed transactions. And again, we run our custom uh, uh, firmware on top of that to add additional security. They reside in highly secure data centers. They're enclosed in steel cases, which are kind of electromagnetically shielded um, and physically protected. So we have both cyber protection um, because HSN is being used by banks worldwide for stuff like SWIFT. Um, they've never been knowingly penetrated. Uh, equally, we have extremely uh, kind of tight physical security. Uh, the keys are backed up, encrypted, uh, and we use kind of special sharded keys for backups again. So there's no single point of failure, uh, no single point of uh, kind of human contention and dependency uh, to avoid any sort of human collusion as well. So extreme kind of physical and cyber security, making sure there's never a single player that can uh, collude to extract keys. Awesome. Extreme. I like that. <laughs> so it's super exciting. So everybody that's uh, interested should A, get in touch with you guys, download the app. Um, where can they find you? Uh, that's right. Yep. And uh, the other thing that's kind of probably worth talking about is the fact that it's really simple to use. So one of the things I will kind of urge people that might hear this is kind of industrial grade uh, security. It is. Uh, at the same time, hopefully it's install the app, go through the KYC process, 
And then you can create as many accounts as you want to, coupled together with just very simple movement of funds. You can transfer from any of the existing hardware wallets or exchanges or cold storage straight into the account. Uh, just put in the uh, newly created address and you can move funds very easily. Awesome. Simple and secure. How can people get a hold of you, Alex? Uh, they can go on our website, trustology.io, um, and there's plenty of contact forms. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn and various other places, but the website is a good starting uh, place. Also in the app and on the website, we now have chat support, so uh, you can chat us. You can go through the contact links. And by the way, the, the other point is we do all of this uh, kind of highly secure stuff in 350 milliseconds. Uh, so a lot of the kind of crypto funds who care about latency and may not put up with a 48-hour delay of cold storage, for instance, uh, tend to kind of get really excited about what we do as well. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on. We hope you'll come back and tell us about uh, new developments as they come along. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Thank you, Colin and Alex. <laughs> so stories we did not have time to cover. From Coindesk.com, R3 co-founder Jesse Edwards is leaving the enterprise blockchain firm. And TheBlockCrypto.com reports a Citigroup job ad suggests blockchain initiatives are heating up at the bank. And also from TheBlockCrypto.com, LMAX Digital records 3 million trades since the launch. And finally, from The Independent, revealed why a British Airways flight to Germany accidentally landed in Scotland... Hmm, anything to do with Brexit? We'll see. So on to our final segment of the week, and it is Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Right, so Tweet of the Week is effectively a straight-up shill from friend of the show, Anthony Lewis. He says, Deconomy, 4th of April, Seoul, Korea is going to be epic. And he tags uh, some people in the post. And a quick caveat here, this is actually a fairly self-indulgent tweet of the week because Tim, myself and Colin are all tagged in that. Um, because we're all going to... Because we're all going to be speaking at Economy, yes. Uh, and if you don't have your tickets yet, you should because it's actually, uh, aside from myself and Tim, a stellar lineup. So <laughs> go along to economy.com and buy a ticket. Okay, well, that brings us pretty much to the end of the news part of the show. But that's not all. Colin talked to Will and Tony from Cadena. Let's hear from them now. So I'm joined here by Will Martino, founder CEO of Cadena, as well as Tony Pham, his head of marketing. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks for having us. So for our listeners that maybe haven't heard your, your name before, this is a project I've been watching for a little while, and I thought it was, it was cool technology a few years ago, and it's even cooler now. Can you tell us a bit about who you guys are and what you do? Sure. Um, and yeah, thanks for following us for a while. Um, the uh, So Cadena is a full stack. It's a holistic approach to um, building a platform that you can do real business with a blockchain on. Um, we don't see there being a serious distinction between public and private or public and enterprise blockchain. We just see blockchain with um, a couple different parts, depending on where you want to deploy. But overall, our entire stack is um, just one big piece. Um, it consists of a smart contract language called Pact, which is a human readable. And by this, I mean, um, it's designed for lawyers and executives to read, if not write. A smart contract language that is stands apart um, on a bunch of different features, but one of the biggest ones is that it's had formal verification for 
over a year at this point. This is formal verification of user code. Um, this is one of the reach goals for the industry, probably until 2021 for most other projects, and we've had it for over a year. Um, Pact runs on top of uh, two different consensus protocols, one for enterprise deployments, which is scalable BFT. Um, and we just released this onto Amazon in a community edition. So you can go and play with it right now if you want to. Uh, this is a deterministic BFT. Um, you can think of it like... Um, Oh, you can give it like a, a Tendermint um, type deployment that runs uh, Pact on top of it. And um, Pact also runs on top of uh, ChainWeb, which is a solely proof of work based um, scalable public blockchain. It works by braiding parallel chains together to have very high throughput while keeping the overall energy use of the base cryptocurrency platform the same. This will be going into testnet in a few weeks um, before the uh, beginning of April. So if, if we kind of like look at the, the braiding, is that kind of um, a similar, although I, uh, technically different um, for our our less technical uh, listeners, is that something similar to like Ethereum sharding where you, you're splitting transactions up or does that work differently? Um, so you can think of it like a safe, uh, um, a safe intentional version of sharding. Um, it's not quite the same. Sharding goes back, and the ideas of sharding go back uh, further than blockchain. They go back to uh, traditional database deployments. Back then, it was called partitioning. Um, and the key with partitioning, when you're going to take a big database and split it up into some chunks, is that you're going to get much higher throughput because you can do things in parallel, but one person, one administrator, owns all of the different chunks. When you move um, that idea into blockchain, you have the issue of, well, this thing is ownerless and trustless, so how do you make sure that um, everyone who's making the network work is replicating and validating um, each of the different pieces. ChainWeb solves this problem by having um, every chain that's being braided together has a fraction of the total hash rate applied to it. And because of how the economics of mining work, miners are incentivized to mine, replicate, and validate the entire network, which is a way that you can actually have everyone looking at all the different pieces all at the same time, um, as opposed to something like Shasper, where um, it's supposed to be handled in the background kind of for you, which really hasn't been laid out in a completely consistent, logically consistent way as someone who... So I, my background is I'm an engineer, and I uh, used to do the distributed systems research for Kadena and also a bit of the formal verification work. And... Um, you run into security problems when you try to shard something that's based on proof of stake. We've tried for over a year to actually apply proof of stake to ChainWeb as a um, as a thought experiment, effectively, because we get asked about it. And we know most of the top researchers in the space in it uh, for proof of stake. And no one's been able to come up with a solution for how you would fit those two pieces together. We know we have proven safety and security with proof of work on ChainWeb. Um, and if we were to try to move to proof of stake, uh, we just wouldn't have those things, and we aren't quite sure how it would put together. So in in the public aspects of, of what you're working on with ChainWeb, that uses something like a proof-of-work mining like a Bitcoin would have, albeit with its differences? Yep. Okay. Let's talk about how you'd get to, from Bitcoin to, we can do it real quick, how you get from Bitcoin to um, ChainWeb. So right now you have Bitcoin, you have a single chain, miners work on the next block. That block refers to the previous one. Whoever wins gets the reward. Again, 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 everyone validates it. If someone puts out a corrupting block, like was seen in EOS over the summer, um, you end up, uh, people just don't work on that. Uh, people work on other blocks and then it doesn't get included. So that's the security, that's the trustlessness, that's the openness. Now let's go to a two-chain variety. Instead of there just being one next block, you have two chains that run in parallel. You split the ledger in half across those two. 
And every time you make a new block, it refers to its previous block and that of the other chain in this two-chain network. The difficulty gets chopped in half because now you're doing um, two blocks in the same time period. The mining reward gets chopped in half. Your throughput doubles. And your security actually goes up because you're doing more blocks in the same period of time. This is kind of how Ghost allows Ethereum to have a shorter confirmation time. Mm-hmm. Similar intuition. Intuitively, that's the right way to think about it. Um, and now... And that was an older idea. It was called block rope or beta coin back in the day. Our major innovation is that we added graph theory to it. So we figured out how to go from 2 to 10, which was already pretty much known, chains in parallel, up to um, hundreds or thousands of chains in parallel. So can you kind of explain that in, uh, like I'm five, um, what, what, is, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do I use that? So you would have a account on, so each ledger is its own sandbox. Think of it like Ethereum, except that it's running a real, safe, provable um, smart contract language where if a contract blows up, you don't have to hard fork the protocol to get a contract fixed. We have governance. We've had it from day one because of our backgrounds focused on enterprise, um, where we knew if we went to an executive and said, hey, by the way, if we have a bug in the system and one of the contracts we wrote, we're going to have to hard fork and upgrade the entire network just to make one fix. So the first thing we did when we designed Pact was that we gave it upgradable contracts. So you know it's running on Pact. Um, and you think of it like Ethereum, except you have multiple different chains that you have to identify where your account's going to live. Um, you'd have uh, accounts on multiple chains. Um, you can do uh, transfers of funds. All the coins are fungible, so you can move funds from one chain to another. Um, you can go and if the network hard forks to a larger configuration, which is one of the strategies with Chainweb, where we launch with uh, probably 10 to 20 chains running in parallel, which is about 200 transactions a second. And then if that gets congested and the fees go up and the gas cost goes up, then we hard fork from 20 chains to 50 chains. And when those new chains come online, you can move your some of your account, if you want, to one of those chains and start to go and um, effectively populate that chain with new contracts and new business. And otherwise, it works in a pretty similar fashion. Long term, uh, I don't think users are really going to be paying much attention to which chain their account lives on. Um, There's going to be middleware that is just going to handle that for you, depending on how you want to do it. Um, But as a developer, it's fantastic because you can actually start load balancing applications. You could deploy something like CryptoKitties to one chain. It can clog that chain because it's such a good app and it has so much market adoption. Um, And the fees just go through the roof for that one chain in the larger network. And then as you see, wow, there's real demand here. We need to scale up. You can deploy sister contracts to neighboring chains, upgrade that initial contract to make it aware of those new contracts. And now you can start load balancing all of the different settlements and all the different applications that are running or all the different logic that's running for this CryptoKitties app. And if those get clogged, well, then you do it again. And if you end up clogging the entire network after it's, let's say, running 200 transactions a second, so you deploy 20 CryptoKitties to or 20 CryptoKitty contracts, one to each chain and you're still clogging the network, and congestion's still up, and fees are still up. Well, that means that we have serious adoption, and the unique thing with Chainweb is we have a really clear intentional roadmap for how to fix that, for how to fix the congestion problem so that we can keep runaway adoption going. And that is we start doing a hard fork. Probably take a day or two, maybe a week, depends on um, exactly what the need of it is, and then you hard fork to 50 chains. At some point, there is going to be more throughput on the network than there is demand for a single app. And then Right, you've correctly load balanced your contracts, and you have an application that's running on a blockchain, decentralized, trustless, 
but is able to actually give you the throughput and really the support as a business and as a developer that you need to make sure that your application doesn't get stuck running into a wall as we've seen so many times over the last five years. That's really cool. Uh, one thing I always ask with kind of the permissionless or public blockchain world that you guys are looking at combining, um, there's a lot of infrastructure you need to put out. So there's there's miners, obviously. There's lots of data, I'm guessing, that you're flowing through multiple different chains running in parallel. Um, so you need people to run full nodes. How How do you incentivize that? How do you kind of bootstrap that ecosystem? Is it something that you're planning on doing or that you've already set up? So we began that process, I'd say, probably this time last year when we were doing our second uh, token presale, where we intentionally reached out to some of the mining community and got them involved so we could talk with them about, okay, what does it look like to go and get miner adoption? Um, Chainweb, the initial launch will, I think that it only comes in a full node uh, version for mining, but that's going to be testnet, leading to mainnet. It's going to be possible for miners to mine individual chains or for users to mine or replicate just the chains that their accounts are on and not the entire network. Um, You still have all the safety that you would have because the stream of the headers from all the various blocks in the network is a pretty low bandwidth, low... um, footprint operation disk-wise. So you can always go and uh, trustlessly verify that the chain that you are replicating, that your view of the world is the view of everyone else, is the same as everyone else's. Um, but moving forward, it's the incentives are such that miners who are seriously mining Chainweb will want to mine all of the chains because the largest um, cost for a miner when they're running one of these networks and they're mining on um, a network is the actual energy and hardware that goes into hashing and mining and not replication. So because of that, adding a couple servers, if we're running, let's say, a thousand chain network in parallel, adding some servers to be able to replicate the whole network and work on all of the various blocks versus just a subset makes a very clear economic sense to a miner. Um, and right now, uh, we're pretty lucky in that there aren't a lot of proof of work projects coming out this year. Most people are moving away from it. Um, thank God the BS about how all of the energy for mining and for Bitcoin comes from coal in China. Thank God it's all been debunked at this point. And we can actually say, it's like, no, actually, it looks like most of it comes from renewable energy. And a lot of it is coming from just excess power that's being generated by you know, dams out in China that would otherwise have to be burnt off or put somewhere else. So because of that, it's kind of like us and Grin, and there aren't a lot of other proof-of-work projects. So because of that, we have a very, we have a much easier time talking to miners because there's just not a lot else that's trying to innovate on the one proven consensus protocol that we have, shockingly enough. So I think that's, that's a really interesting point you kind of brought up, and it makes me think about when you talk to um, people bringing new bonds or equities to, to market, they talk about, you know, what is the other supply and who else am I competing with out there? And the idea that you don't have a lot of other um, competition in the proof of work space is quite interesting. Um, and maybe people haven't really realized that. Uh, how do you um, start by focusing and building user and developer adoption? Is it on industry by industry basis? I know that you're cross industry, but how do you start that process and where are you at? So we have a few different strategies that we run at the same time. Part of it is the open source uh, public community uh, developer onboarding strategy. Um, That one, actually, we have a pretty easy time once we can get in front of people and talk about PACTS, our smart contract language, with uh, someone who has actually done a uh, Ethereum-based application. And shockingly enough, there aren't actually a lot of people who have, who have really built things in Solidity. But for the people who have, the sales pitch starts with, 
it has error messages. And then it goes on to say, you can upgrade contracts without having to you know, um, add in some extra feature or to have to go and tweet Vitalik and beg him to do a hard fork because your multi-sig account has gotten locked up. And it goes from there. There's an enormous amount of features. The language is terribly easy to use. It takes like a weekend to learn, maybe a week. It's designed for a lawyer to be able to read. Not any lawyer, but a technical lawyer who understands the domain. And these people exist, ones who are good at Excel. And if it's designed for someone to be usable by someone like that, then it's not hard for a dev to learn. So usually it doesn't take very long. I don't think we've run into anyone who's taken more than a couple of weeks. So that is one part of it. But another part of it for adoption is that we have this enterprise side of the company because um, my co-founder and I met at JP Morgan's blockchain R&D group. We actually built and deployed what would probably at this point be called JPM Coin V0. Um, this was a project called Juno that was open source and presented to Hyperledger back in the day. And it was a high performance. Well, for back then, 500 transactions a second was high performance. It was 500 times faster than um, anything else on the market at the point. And it was deployed between London and Tokyo doing um, uh, you know, internal payment transfers um, on behalf of the bank in different branches. And when we left, we had all of these questions that we knew needed to be answered before we could go to a business, um, either vertical or a business itself and say, hey, you can actually use this technology in a real way. And we set out to go and build the solution to that. And about a year later, we start working with our first Fortune 100 client. Um, this is in the healthcare space. And at around that time, we also started working on the public network um, because we had discovered ChainWeb and saw this just enormous potential of having a public and a private community that um, where you have enterprises that are using it and are devoting resources to making it better. But also you have all these people in public that are excited and they're also excited by the idea that, hey, maybe I can get a job working at like one of these bigger corporations um, or maybe I can actually build my own business using this technology. So part of it is that we have at this point probably six major clients that we're working with, a couple Fortune 500s, one's in insurance, um, one is in uh, fintech, it's kind of like an STO-like thing. Um, a few that are more startup-y focused um, in the healthcare space, in real estate tokens. Um, but the key to all of it is that these are real applications where we're not just adding a drop of blockchain to the mix and then doing a press release. These are things that can only exist because of a blockchain and bring real new features to the actual consumer marketplace when they launch. And I think that that specific point you just mentioned about things that couldn't exist before is is critical kind of the success how, how do you see the next uh, 12 to 24 months playing out for you guys um that is a hard question to answer i can do probably six and 12 months and then 24 months is going to get kind of wild let's do six and 12 <laughs> <laughs> so six and 12 six we will be approaching mainnet um pretty quickly or have just launched it um, you know, the kind of late date for it is September, but I'm hoping to get it up before that. Um, and that's the main network launch. And then all of a sudden, you're going to actually be able to build real ironclad um, enterprise solutions or startups that want to do real new business ideas can build these things that we're describing as hybrid blockchains. Um, so one of the big problems when you try to use a, a public blockchain is that gas is expensive. And there is this way that you can link a 
public and a private chain where you have a private consensus chain that is running um, kind of the meat of the application. And it's not fully decentralized and fully trustless. There's usually some business that's behind it, but it is much more decentralized and much more trustless than an existing just like centralized server. So that runs on one side. And then that has some base token. So think like JPM coin again. Um, you could think of that private network and that JPM coin that it represents as the private side of a hybrid. And then you crack the ledger for JPM coin in half, that base ledger that tracks the USD tethered token effectively that they use internally. And you put the other half on a public network. You put it into one of PAX smart contracts. We have a lot of stuff that allows you to do interop between these two regions in a totally trustless and decentralized way. And now all of a sudden, you can get new clients from the public side. Because we have this thing called... Um, which is actually a totally new feature that no one talks about. Um, the rest of the space can talk about. Um, we have smart contract interop, so you can actually have one contract import another contract in a safe way and use it. Um, Ethereum was initially uh, marketed on kind of two features. One was being able to do tokens. The other was to have smart services effectively, where you could have a contract that is used by another contract and get some fee for the data or for the work that it does. Um, Parity Multisig showed us all that that is a terrible idea in a language that isn't designed, or in a system that isn't designed for that idea to exist in a real way. So, um, but we have this ability. So you can have you know, part of that ledger of this hybrid system on the public side represented as a smart contract. That's kind of like the API endpoint almost. It's the part, it's like the storefront or the shopping cart for a public blockchain. That can then be used by whatever or just directly interacted with by consumers. And for larger computational workloads, you can um, shuttle them off to the private side. And then larger enterprises can also actually start replicating some of the nodes from the private side for even faster integration. Awesome. So I, I got one last question and, and you guys tell me what you could tell me. Are you guys going to be uh, building a JPM coin either for JPM or somebody else to, to bring what's done inside of an internal chain out to the real world? Um, so if we were working with JPM, we couldn't say, um, but the answer is actually no. Um, the, we are working with people who in the long term, it would probably evolve to something similar. Um, it wouldn't quite be the same. Um, it'd be more focused on the settlement layer for, um, kind of existing electronically traded, um, assets effectively. Okay. Sounds, sounds cool. And I, when you can talk about it, I'd love if you guys came back and, and shared more on that. Totally. The second that we can, um, you know, working with enterprises is hard for a bunch of reasons. One of them is that everything's under NDA and you can't talk about names until we're ready to go live. And I cannot wait until that day changes. <laughs> I, I know the, the, the feeling very well. Thank you guys very much for coming on. Uh, can you tell us where people can find out more about you and get involved with Kadena and play with your tools? Yeah. Um, so one of the best, pla or best places to probably start is the website. It's kadena.io. Um, we have a online web REPL for PACT, our smart contract language, which um, I believe soon will have formal verification in browser integrated, which is going to be really cool. Um, and that is actually pact.kadena.io. And you can just go there now and play with it. Um, you can join us on Discord or on Telegram. Um, all those links can be found on the website. Um, also, all the white papers and most of our talks will be available there as well. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thanks, Colin, Will, and Tony. 
So just to remind you all, I think this is probably the penultimate shill of the day. This podcast is made by 11FS and they are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. 11FS also create digital propositions and podcasts. Want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday? Well, just subscribe. The button's there. And if you're already subscribed, why don't you throw us a review? We understand you might not want to give us five stars because of CGP, uh, but a review nonetheless would be awesome. So where can people find out more about you, Tim? I have an active Twitter feed at n- of numbers, and then I also have a website, upnumbers.com. Excellent. And you can find me on Twitter at Seronimo, or you can tweet Clearmatics at Clearmatics, because that's where I work, or go to github.com forward slash Clearmatics. So massive thank you to the amazing production team here at 11FS, our producers Petra and Laura Watkins, and Alex Woodhouse, our genius editor. Thanks for listening. We have more Blockchain Insider next week, so don't worry. Goodbye.